Amen. May the Lord grant what we just sung. Give us clean hands, pure heart, only possible through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Anything to keep me from tripping and stumbling and giving everybody occasion to laugh. Laugh for other reasons, not that. Oh, question, what, what unites the 50 states of the United States of America with all its diversity? Well, there's a couple things we could point to. One is the Declaration of Independence, which declares our freedom from unjust rule and oppressive power. And secondly, we might point to the Constitution, which worked out the implications of that Declaration of Freedom. Freedom is a fragile thing in this world, isn't it? As is unity. Both are and have been threatened from within and without. Uh, Self-serving and enslaving agendas are usually behind threats to unity and freedom. Now, that was just an example of what we're going to talk about today, not confusing the freedom we have in the United States with gospel freedom. Uh, But what we're talking about today is we're going to see how the early church withstood the threat to its unity when the core of its unity, the gospel, was threatened. So what we've been doing is we've been in a study of Galatians and looking at the gospel for life. And I'll just quickly summarize what we talked about last week. Last week we were looking at the end of chapter 1, the last big chunk of chapter 1. And in that we saw that Paul took pains, the Apostle Paul, took pains to emphasize that the gospel that he received, that he preached, was not from man, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And there were those who were promoting a distorted gospel in this area of Galatia, which mostly is modern-day Turkey. And they were trying to say that Paul got his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. But the reason for doing that is they were trying to paint Paul as a rogue disciple of the apostles who kind of went off on his own and was preaching an easier, law-free gospel. He was dumbing down the gospel by their accusation, trying to make it easier for Gentiles to, to receive it. And that he wasn't giving them the whole gospel. And so Paul said he didn't even connect with Peter and the apostles uh, until three years after his conversion. So Paul encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he doesn't even consult anybody after that because Jesus teaches him everything he needs to know about the gospel. So then, after three years, he goes up and visits uh, Peter and James, Jesus' brother, and spends 15 days with them. And then he goes back to spreading the gospel outside of Israel, where the other apostles were still concentrating their efforts. And so he spends his time in Syria and uh, Cilicia, which is still modern-day Turkey, and other Gentile regions. So gradually the news spreads among the churches in Israel that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. That brings us to today's text in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at chapter 2. Uh, verses 2, verses 1 through 10. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 together. Or I'll read it and you listen. Or you can murmur it along with me. Uh, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for ministry to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What's all that about? Well, let's work at it, see if we can find out. So after 14 years from Paul's conversion, he goes up to Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem, taking his ministry partners, Barnabas, with him, who is a Jew, and Titus, who is a Gentile. And so why did he go to Jerusalem at this point? Well, he says, I went to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Paul went not because he was summoned by the Jerusalem apostles, but because God revealed to him that he should go. It was that important that God said, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles. Now, I don't know how many of you here love meetings, but if God tells you to go to a meeting, that's one not to skip, right? At least you shouldn't. So uh, the main purpose for Paul's going, he says, was to present the gospel he proclaimed among the Gentiles. Why did he present the gospel he was proclaiming to them? In order to make sure, he says, he was not running in vain. In other words, he says, I wanted to make sure my efforts were not wasted. I wasn't wasting my time. My efforts didn't come to nothing. So does Paul mean that he wanted to be sure that he was preaching the true gospel, the right gospel? He was checking up on, am I doing the right thing? No way, because earlier he said, I received my gospel directly from Jesus Christ, and I didn't have to consult with anybody on it, so therefore he's not saying I'm going to check and confirm that it was, it was the right gospel. Um, he's saying uh, he wanted to present it to those who were known to be leaders or influential in case he had been running in vain. So why does he say that? Why would he think he had been wasting his time? Why would he think he had been running in vain? He had been ministering to no end. Well, now that Paul had been preaching the gospel for 11 or 12 years since his last visit, he was aware that not all Christians of Jewish background grasp the full implications of the gospel. Implications of the gospel. That's a big word that means what truths relate to the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And in that context, not a big deal now, but uh, the people could be saved and fully accepted, saved and fully accepted by God, without adopting the Old Testament Jewish practices such as circumcision, holy days, and laws about clean and unclean food. So, as with any deep-rooted religious traditions, to say such things were no longer necessary for a person to be accepted by God uh, stirred up a lot of trouble, such as what he was experiencing in Galatia. So he's, telling, he's writing this to the Galatians saying, hey, I've already struggled with this issue before. This is not a new issue. So what Paul was concerned about was a potential major division among the churches. This was his big concern. He wasn't concerned that he had the wrong gospel. He was concerned 
He wanted to confirm that he and the other apostles were united in the gospel, even though they served in different mission contexts. So that's what Paul's concerned about. So his concern, half I've been running in vain, is like this. Is the mission about to implode? Is the mission about to crash and burn because uh, we're not on the same page? If not the gospel itself, the implications of the gospel concerning circumcision in particular? So Paul came not to confront them. He met with them privately, so this wasn't an open hearing. He comes to uh, discuss with them, and hoping, he was hoping for unity in the gospel. And he came in that attitude. So an example of a similar struggle today is how the gospel is being received in Muslim con- countries, Muslim cultures. Um, so here's the basic issue. When a person in a Muslim culture comes to Christ, what things can he or she retain, what things can be redeemed out of that culture, and what things need to be rejected? And there's a lot of controversy over that today, just like there was back here in Paul's day. Um, but really, that's not a, an issue that we're unfamiliar with in, this, in our own culture. We're more used to Christianity in our culture. However, uh, when a person comes to Christ, and they're coming out of a particularly a anti-Christian, non-Christian environment, then we, they have the same issues to, to address in their lives. What things can be redeemed from my background and past, and what things do I need to reject? And a lot of times that's a matter of wisdom. It's not a matter of can you be saved or not. It's a matter of how do you live in a godly fashion. So Paul clearly knew what he re- rejected, and we see that in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul is saying he brought along Titus, who's a Greek and one of the, his key ministry team members. So would the Jerusalem apostles insist that Titus be circumcised? Because they knew he was a Gentile, they would assume he was not circumcised. A circumcision was hugely important to the Jews as a sign of their covenant relationship with God. So it was, ex- was extremely hard for them to imagine anybody being acceptable to God who wasn't circumcised. Any male, obviously. Um, and so... Paul says that even Titus, and this is in verse 3, who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So thankfully, the other apostles recognized that Titus did not need to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. Uh, They did not compel him to do that. Their meeting agenda did not include uh, first order of business, make sure everybody's circumcised. It wasn't on the table. The fact that the Jerusalem apostles didn't compel Titus to be circumcised was a huge confirmation that they preached the same gospel as Paul, especially when we see how this became an issue. Why did this become an issue? It wasn't just because Titus was there, but in verse 4 we see uh, that uh, there were some false Christians that had secretly slipped in. Paul doesn't give the details, but somehow a group a group of false believers in, uh, infiltrated the meeting itself or got to the apostles beforehand. They came as spies, seeking to undermine Paul as anti-Jewish, which is strange because he was Jewish, or anti-law, and create a division between him and the Jerusalem apostles, that he was teaching a loose, ungodly freedom. So that's what he says in verse 4. And he says, um, with Titus, who is an uncircumcised Gentile, as part of Paul's apostolic team, the false Christians, the false brothers, uh, thought that they had what they needed. Ah, we can nail Paul on this one because we can show that he's compromising by not having this guy circumcised. So surely they probably insinuated to the Jerusalem apostles, they said something like this, a man involved in calling people to the God of Abraham and Moses should be circumcised, right? 
And the truth is, if we can't make any mistake, anything added to the gospel or held up on equal importance with the gospel undermines the freedom we have in Christ and enslaves us to human standards that cannot make us more acceptable to God. In other words, those things blunt anything that we equate with the gospel or we add to the gospel blunts and nullifies the transforming power of the gospel to save and to transform our lives. In other words, they strengthen our addiction to man-made religion because we are so wired to assume that there's something that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. We're just, that is our default religion. Whether we are not thinking about God, whether it's not religious or secular, we are so sure that something that we can do, something about us, makes us right as people. And if we're thinking about it religiously, we think, this is what makes me right in God's sight. That is where we're going to go every time. But when we, when we dull the gospel by adding to it, we make the gospel seem weak and foolish. So, for example, um, many churches in the, in the United Kingdom today have grown weak in, in the gospel, and so many youth are converting to Islam because, as one young British woman said, I'm so grateful I found my escape route. I'm no longer a slave to a broken society and its expectations. So she thinks by embracing Islam, she's coming out of slavery to the culture. And it's just exchanging one form of slavery for another. Apart from the gospel, there is no real freedom in Christ. There is no freedom spiritually. And so, in verse 5, that's why Paul says uh, what he says in verse 5. We must not compromise the gospel in the slightest way so as not to lose it. So Paul was not against circumcision in, in itself because he himself was circumcised. In fact, later... He had a young associate named Timothy circumcised because Timothy was part Jewish and he had, and he had a Greek father and had never been circumcised. So he decided that um, because he was going to be ministering a lot in a Jewish culture, that was going to be an unnecessary offense. And so for missional strategic purposes, for Timothy's mission, he decided that Timothy should be circumcised so as not to create unnecessary offense with the Jews. You say, well, man, when I would go on a mission trip, I mean, all I had to do is get uh, uh, vaccinations. I just say, ow, that would be one painful way to go on a mission trip. But Paul knew that in this situation, they couldn't budge at all because the gospel was at stake. The false brothers, the false Christians, intended to force it upon Titus as a requirement for him to be right, acceptable with God. And the gospel would have been compromised, and that one add-on, that one gospel little add-on of saying you must be circumcised in order to be saved or accepted by God would have demolished the work of the gospel. In, in other words, destroy the mission with circumcision. That's, how, that's why Paul says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He knew that... The future of the mission was at stake if they led anything added on to the gospel. So you're going to hear this again and again, and you're going to get tired of hearing it. I hope you get tired of hearing it. I hope it so much becomes our vocabulary that we just are so clear on what the gospel is. So we recognize that anything added on to it is not the gospel. But the gospel of how a person is made right with God, how a person is accepted by God, is this. We are saved by grace alone, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you 
can't think of anything else, that sums up the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In his death, his life, death, and resurrection are the only grounds of our acceptance with God. Nothing else makes us acceptable to God. Outside of that, no matter how quote-unquote good we are, we cannot be accepted by God because everything we are is polluted by sin, whether we're just really rank sinners or whether we're cultured, refined, uh, know-how-to-look-good sinners. That is our state into which we're born. That's the state in which we live. So the only hope we have is the gospel. And any distortion of it is a, not the gospel. So I had a couple young men come to my door the other night, and they said, Hi, we are so-and-so. Um, they asked if I knew anything about their beliefs and if I had questions. I said, Yeah, I know about your beliefs, and I'd, here's a question I have for you. Summarize the gospel for me in one minute. Really? Yes. So they did their best, and they gave me some elements of the gospel, plus doing good things and following Jesus' example. And then other things come into play as well. So, yes, do good things to the extent we can, follow Jesus' example, but not as the grounds of being right with God and accepted by him. Absolutely, those are not the grounds of acceptance with God. They are the results of a transformed life, and you can't be saved with a non-gospel, a false gospel. So many think today that making distinctions like this as to what the gospel is, useless hair-splitting, like theological split ends. Come on, what's the big deal? Uh, why make a big deal about such minor differences and definitions of the gospel? Aren't you just being overly picky? Um, as long as people are sincere, this is, how the th- this is how we think. Come on, I know we, o- we all tend to think this way. As long as people are sincere and their religion helps them to be a better person, isn't that all that matters? That is not the gospel. The gospel of sincerity is not the gospel. Only the acceptability in the death, resurrection, and life of Jesus Christ for us is the gospel. Faith in him. Because we can be sincerely wrong, right? And some of us have already been there this week. Just ask your spouse. I'll let you know. Except for you, Debbie. Debbie. And so that perspective is very appealing. It sounds very nice. It's just dead wrong. So anything added to the gospel that makes our acceptance with God based on anything or anyone or us except Christ and his life, death, and resurrection cannot save us. It can only enslave us. It cannot save us. It can only enslave us. It cannot set us free from sin and death. That's why Paul said he would not budge for a minute or give an inch to the truth of the gospel. So... Uh, what are the things today that we, that you and I might add to the gospel? Open forum here. What are things that we most likely are tempted to add to the gospel? Say it again. Yeah, yeah. This makes me more acceptable to God to be doing this ministry. Temptation for us who rightfully want to serve the Lord, right? Any, any other thoughts? Paying your way? Yeah, yeah. I know God's going to accept me because I'm paying my dues to be at church. Any other thoughts? So you all are really totally clear on the gospel and there's no temptation to add anything. I just thought I'd check. Great. 
no, that'll damn you as sure as anything. He said, I know the pastor. That, that is absolutely going to send you straight to hell, Roy. If you trust in that, and right, so seriously true. Uh, Good works. Uh, How about how I raise my kids? School choices I make for my kids. How about my job? How about my expertise? And things like that. We can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll talk a lot more about how obedience to God relates to the gospel. We just don't ever make it the grounds of our acceptance with Christ ever. And, and I tell you, you're going to get bored of hearing this until you just can spew it right back at me. Because that's our default mode. We look to ourselves. We always think there's something we can do to save ourselves. Well, uh, in verse 6 then, Paul, uh, since those who were trying to distort the gospel were trying to pit the Jerusalem apostles against Paul, he makes clear that as important as the men in Jerusalem, Peter and the gang, were, They didn't contribute anything to his gospel. That is because there is only one gospel. They had nothing to add, nothing to change to his gospel. So that's what verse 6 is about. Um, He revealed it to the original 12, and he revealed it to Paul who came later by revelation directly from Jesus. So the original apostles had no seniority when it came to the truth of the gospel. All the apostles were were gospel receivers, and they were meant to deliver what they received. Uh, Their authority was not in themselves, like, ooh, man, Peter, he's top dog here. Their authority was in being commissioned by Christ to communicate the gospel. And we we run into that today, don't we? People will say this all the time, or I kept myself thinking this way. So uh, what does the Bible say about this? Well, I heard this TV preacher, this radio pastor, or this great, you know, Exalted, definitely not here because exalted and great don't apply here, but uh, I heard so-and-so say this, so therefore it must be true. Well, it might be, but it's only if the Scripture agrees, not because that person says it. So there is only one gospel. We don't adjust the gospel to accommodate different groups. That's what Paul's saying in verse 6. The gospel is the faith, according to Jude 3, once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in verses 7 through 9, there's kind of a big, somewhat confusing passage there, but here's what Paul's saying, verses 7 to 9. To say we don't adjust the gospel itself to fit different groups and cultures doesn't mean that we ignore the differences between different cultures into which we bring the gospel. So even though Paul nearly always preached to the Jews in an area first, He had a particular calling to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. He was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. The ultimate Jew becomes the apostle to the Gentiles in God's grace. And even though Peter preached to the Gentiles on occasion, so like, for example, he won a centurion, a Roman centurion, to Jesus, uh, his primary focus was on those of Jewish background. So that's why Paul says in verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and so on. The passage is a, this passage is a great example of unity, of unity in the gospel. First, because they agreed that the basis of Christian unity is the gospel. Yeah, our unity is in Jesus, but in Jesus as he is revealed in the gospel. 
And the way that we are made right with God in Jesus is revealed in the gospel. So our unity is sourced and centered in the gospel, not in our feelings or any man-created unifying structure. The gospel is what unites believers. And secondly, they recognize the validity of each other's calling to different mission contexts. They didn't say, if you really were serving Jesus, you would be doing ministry our way. Have you ever heard that one? Or thought that one? You would be part of our group supporting our mission. I mean, over the years, I've seen this a lot in churches where uh, that's how we think. We think my ministry, my cause, the thing that I'm zealous about, everybody should be on the same page as me on that. And if everybody was as spiritual or pleasing to God as I am, then we would all be equally excited about that ministry. Now, be totally excited about your ministry, but that's not, that's not a gospel add-on. It's, it is something to uh, celebrate in one another that we're all called the different mission context. Because there are so many different neighborhoods, so many different people groups, so many different cities and nations that need to have the gospel planted and grown and sent out uh, from, from them, uh, the one gospel will need different groups with different cultural packaging to effectively reach these different cultures, these different groups. So, for example, I meet with a group of uh, Camas and foreigners called, it's a, it's a region called Washugal, pastors. We meet together, we pray together, and our unity is in the gospel. We're able to celebrate how God's working differently in our different churches, and it's really cool. But the unity is in the gospel, and yeah, we kind of like one another, we get on one another's cases and so on, but it's good. Um, the heart of our unity is in the gospel. Or, for example, last week I was able to meet with Roderick Gilbert. Some of you might remember him. He's a mission leader from India whom God has used to uh, see about 5,000 house churches planted a year in recent years in India. And he was here uh, to attend a board meeting for a ministry called Windows International, not speaking about uh, a PC operating software. You computer geeks are not even laughing at that one. Come on. It's a prayer ministry for the 1040 window. Now, the 1040 window is this. Okay, I know that we're all ignorant of geography, but if I, if I would have had time to pull together a map, I'd do it. But here, okay, so here on my right is North Africa, and on my left is China. 10 degrees north of the equator, 40 degrees north of the equator, everything from North Africa to China is called the 1040 window. And that's, that's a thing because it helps us to think missionally because in that... Uh, window is 4.65 billion out of the 7 billion people on earth live in that window. And it's um, more unreached people groups in that uh, 1040 window than any other nation on any other region on earth. So uh, there's a prayer ministry called Windows International for the 1040 window and Roderick Gilbert from India participates in that board and it's, mo- mo- it's mostly a western organized board but it has people from other regions of the world one thing he wants to do is he wants to start a prayer movement over on his side of the world for pagan Europe and North America. And so that's really cool how God works out that way, works his grace. And we have unity in the gospel, serving in different mission contexts, able to recognize and encourage groups from outside your own, all the while zealous for our own context. There's no way that Western-style ministry would be able to multiply 5,000 churches a year in India. Now, be it, it could work here, Western-style ministry, but we, we have different contexts, one gospel, different mission context. 
Now, of course, since Harvest is a small church, we don't have, I mean, we're just kind of all one, really, right? I mean, we don't have any different parties, party spirit at all. I mean, we don't have any problems with unity in this church, right? Um, so, like, the youth sit over here, and the long-timers sit over here, and a few new people who don't know any better sit over there. And, um, and then the newer, sort of, younger family. So, no, we don't. No, that's good. We, groups are okay. That's fine. But let's just remember that we all ha- we're all serving the cause of one gospel. We can celebrate what God is doing in our midst. And what we're, we should all be zealous for what we can do uniquely. Uh, at the same time, we do want to not let divisions, as if we have different gospels or different, a different Christ. We're serving one Christ. So like Paul and James and Peter and John, let's be looking for the grace God has given to one another. That's what Paul said in verse, I think, 9 of this text. Uh, recognizing the grace given to me, uh, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So we, that's one way that we like to pray as staff and as elders. We say, let's look for signs of grace in our body and let's pray and recognize and celebrate the signs of God's grace in our body. So that's how we like to think about what God is doing. Well, the last thing that Paul says is, uh, right alongside unity in the unadjusted, pure gospel... That's a huge deal. If we didn't get that from this text, Paul says, do not ever compromise the gospel in the name of anything. Right alongside that, he said, the the only thing that they asked Paul to do was what? Remember the poor. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the immediate need that they refer to in this context was the poor saints in Jerusalem and Judea, that's Israel, Judea mostly equated with Israel, this was in part due to environmental factors, that there was a famine and, and a, hard, uh, a dry, arid climate. And also the many Christians in that Jewish context were persecuted, so they uh, struggled to earn a living. So there was many poor people in Jerusalem, Judea. And, and so they're saying, Paul, in order to maintain the unity with the church while you're out there seeing the Gentile church increase, help us to maintain unity between us and Israel and you by giving to the poor. And Paul says, I was eager to do that. Now, the bigger principle here is this. We must keep these two things together and never let them come apart. Gospel mission and caring for the poor. Often the church has overemphasized one at the expense of the other. And that's created disunity on that issue. So, in other words, uh, we shouldn't choose between the right gospel content and communication and caring for the poor. We don't want to lose the gospel, which sometimes has happened as the church has said, we really need to care for the poor, and they, they lose the gospel in the process of seeking to show compassion to the poor. And that's not good because then you can't, all the care and for the poor in the world cannot give them eternal life, right? Only the gospel can give eternal life. At the same time, we don't want to lose compassion for the poor because we live in a broken world and many won't be reached with the gospel apart from works of mercy and compassion in their poverty and suffering. So these things that God always meant to be joined together should never come apart. Gospel mission and mercy for the poor. So, for example, we talked about the 1040 window. It just so happens that not only are the least reached people in the world living in that 1040 window, that amounts to about um, out of the 4.65 billion 
2.8 billion of these are unreached, meaning there's no viable gospel movement among them. Also, 87% of these are the poorest of the poor. So the poorest of the poor, the the most gospel-deprived and the most finance-deprived people in the world live in that 1040 window. 87% are the poorest of the poor, living on an average of only $250 per family per year. And so, for example, you hear these statistics and just numb your mind, but just to, name, just to mention a couple of these things. Today, before this day is over, 2,000 kids in that part of the world will, be, will die because of unclean water. Um, disease-carrying water. So, for example, some church movements, some mission movements are recognizing to do church planting along with um, WASH, as water, sanitation, and hygiene hygiene ministry, the same together. So teaching hygiene, clean water, helping communities to do that for themselves so they're not dependent on Western people, and bringing the gospel. So not compromising the gospel, but also bringing uh, community development to these poor communities. So it's not just money, it's being there. So for example, uh, there's uh, a new movement out of North Korea called the New Underground Railroad. In case you're not familiar, North Korea is one of the most oppressive, poverty-stricken nations in the world. It's very gospel-deprived, and it's very oppressive to live there. So lots of people want to get out. And there are Christians who have devoted their lives to helping people transition out of North Korea into China and find a way to South Korea or other Western countries, and Christians who are doing that. So that, that applies on the global scale, but in our own culture, those impacted by drug addiction, Family trauma, human trafficking, immigration, for example, are often the poorest of the poor in our own culture. And so we need to uh, be diligent in gospel accuracy as well as mission ministry to the poor. So that's what Paul is saying in this text. Christians have unity in the gospel but diverse mission context. So let's pray and ask for God to keep us united in the gospel partnering with those who are also share the same gospel and showing mercy to the poor. And then after that, we're going to have commissioning for a ministry that's starting up tonight. So join me as we pray, and then we'll see this uh, kids' ministry come up. Father in heaven, thank you for making your gospel so clear to us, the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, that only we are counted right in your sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because only his death could have paid the price for our sins, and only his resurrection could give us the power of, of eternal life. Thank you, Father, for that simple message, but we recognize it is always under attack. It's always, it's always uh, threatened, even by ourselves, because we so easily gravitate to trusting in anything but Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And or we live inconsistently, Father, with the gospel. We live as if things that we do make us, give us uh, an upgraded status before you. There is no upgraded status before you. We are either in Christ or out of Christ. And Father, we do desire that our lives would reflect the glory and goodness of Jesus and his mercy as well. So help us to be very diligent in keeping clear on the gospel, celebrating that glorious 
truth because it's all about Christ and his saving grace and at the same time showing ministry, compassion to the poor and those in need and are both near to us in our own body and outside and across national borders. We pray, Father, for gospel movements to continue in Camas, Washougal, Portland, Vancouver, and among the nations. We pray in particular for our connection with India. Father, for Roger Gilbert and A.J. Pillay and the ministry movements that they are giving oversight to there by your grace. Thank you that you've used them so fruitfully to see disciples and churches multiplied in those nations, showing compassion and mercy at the same time. And then, Father, I pray that there would be none here today who would leave without placing their trust in Jesus Christ. Because he is a sure and certain hope, he grants eternal life freely to all who will trust in him. So, God, please help everyone here today to come to saving faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.